But let's open with prayer. Oh Lord, we need Thee every hour, every moment we need Thee. So Lord, would You be with us and help us as we hear Your Word to hear, understand, and apply. Be with me that what I say may be pleasing in Your sight. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the tornado sirens are blaring. The storm clouds look dark, angry, and ominous in the distance, and you are headed to safety. Well, that is kind of what is going on in our passage, because if you were with us last week, when we looked at chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 13, you will remember that God brought to fruition his promise to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 15 through 18, which says, And the Lord said to Elijah, You shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Yet though that happened in 1 Kings 19, we went 10 chapters without hearing of anything regarding Jehu and Haziel. God worked mightily through Elisha, but it was not till last week in chapter 8 that we saw God's judgment begin to come through Haziel and now with Jehu. Well, last week we saw a battle began with Haziel, king of Syria, against Joram, king of Israel, in Ramoth-Gilead. But Joram was injured, so he was taken 44 miles back to the city of Jezreel, where he is recovering. And while he was there, God sent a prophet to Jehu and anointed him as the next king of Israel. And yet one other thing was important. Look at chapter 9, verse 7, because it says, And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of the servants of the Lord. And now this morning, we see the storm. The storm that Keith read part of for us earlier. And it's really a very fascinating story, because as we look at it, we're left with questions of what should we make of Jehu. If you look at your bulletin, you can see on the back the outline, and on it, we see first that God's judgment comes through Jehu on the kings. Then God's judgment comes through Jehu on Jezebel. But then we start having some questions. Is it God's judgment through Jehu on Ahab's descendants? Or are these some other people? Is this God's judgments through Jehu on the priest of Baal? Or is this Jehu enacting his own plan? And then the script flips. Because the final eight verses is actually God's judgment through Haziel, on Jehu himself. So a very interesting story that all begins in chapter 9, verse 14. So Jehu is anointed as king, and he begins a swift conspiracy. Since there's no cell phones, there's no way for Joram to know that Jehu has been anointed king unless someone goes down and reports it. So Jehu tells the friends of his, don't let anyone escape, and he starts on his mad dash down to Jezreel. And the watchman, probably a pretty boring job, looking out at the horizon all day, finally goes, I see something! And so he sends out a writer, and the writer goes 
And when he gets there, he says, is it peace? And Jehu says, how can there be peace? Ride behind me. And the watchman watches, and the horseman doesn't come back. So he sends another one. And the same thing happens. And so Jehoram, the king, Joram, the king, he thinks, well, look, Jehu's coming. We could tell by his wild driving. I'll go out and check. You know, Joram is not expecting any kind of conspiracy. He, so he goes out thinking that Jehu's probably bringing news of how the battle's going at Ramoth Gilead. And then we see again God's humorous and impeccable timing. Because where do the chariots of Jehu and the chariots of Joram meet? At the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. The very one for whom Ahab and Jezebel are being punished because they lied, said Naboth, cursed God so they could kill him and take his land. I mean, think of all that would have to happen for them to meet at the exact same time. This is way beyond Algebra 1, and this chariot is going south at 19 miles per hour, and this chariot's going. We had to account for him coming from a far country, and not just one, not just two, but three different riders going and then getting the message. Everything had to be pinned down perfectly, and yet God works it all out. Again, Joram has no suspicion, so he comes asking, hey, basically, how, how are things in Ramoth Gilead? What's going on? The thing is, Joram has his eyes set on symptoms. Jehu has his mind set on root diagnosis, root diseases, because Jehu responds by asking, how can things be well with the spiritual adultery of Jezebel? See, Ramoth Gilead, yes, Israel's fighting a battle there, but that is a symptom of the underlying cause. What is the cause of Israel's problems? It's Jezebel's sin. Their sin of worshiping Baal that led everyone else into it. And so it is with us. The core problem in our lives is our sin. Yes, we may have horrible relationships. We may have debilitating health conditions and other significant issues. Yet when each one of us stands before God, we'll realize that our biggest problem was not those things but our sin, and have we had our relationship with him restored? Well, Joram immediately realizes now what has happened, but it's too late, because though he turns his chariot around, Jehu shoots an arrow, pierces through to his heart, and Joram dies. And then we learn a new and interesting information. Jehu had been there on the day when Elijah cursed Ahab. He had been there when he said, you will be killed here on this field, repaid on this very ground. And so they throw Joram's body on the vineyard of Naboth. But it's not just Joram. King Ahaziah, the grandson of Ahab, also attempts to flee, but he's shot and later dies. But notice again, verse 26. There in 926, Jehu says, as speaking, for the Lord, as surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord. You know, this passage reminds us of the wonderful truth that God sees all. Have you ever reflected on that amazing truth that God is the one who sees? If you have kids, you know they often are clamoring, watch me, watch me, watch me, daddy, I'm going to do this. They want you to see. They want you to watch. 
Sometimes we want things to be watched, so we set up security cameras, or some things we need to be zoomed in in detail, so athletic events now have instant replay. God sees it all. In Genesis 16, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is abusing her servant Hagar, and Hagar flees into the wilderness, and there she's lying by a well, and God came, and he spoke to Hagar. He comforted her, and he promised her a son. And then Genesis 6, 16, 13 says, So Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God is a God of seeing. He sees your troubles. He sees your anxieties. He sees your sufferings. And he cares so much that he didn't just send a son to Hagar. He sent his son for you. So that he might be with you. So that he might remove the cause of all suffering in the first place. So that he might come, die, rise again to go prepare a place for us. Where there will no longer be suffering. Well, sometimes God does not wait until the final judgment though. And we see that again next in verses 30 through 37 because God's judgment is through Jehu on Jezebel. The word travels quick. Jezebel hears what happens. And so what does she do? She puts makeup on. That's exactly what you do when you're about to die. She puts her hair up and she puts her crown on her head. Now some people have taken this as though Jezebel is now trying to seduce Jehu and thus through her charms and looks she'll get Jehu to join with her. And while that could be the point, I think her actions and words are showing something a little different. When Jehu arrives, she leans out her window and calls to Jehu, Is it peace you Zimri, murder of my master, or of your master? Now who is Zimri? Well you have to remember or go back and read, some Israelite history. Zimri was a commander of half the chariots of the Israelite army. And in 1 Kings 16, he led a conspiracy against King Elah, and he assassinated him. And yet though Zimri made a wonderful plot to assassinate the king, he hadn't worked out all the details afterwards because the army says, we don't want Zimri, he's a chariot guy. We want Omri, he's the army commander. And Omri then went and killed Zimri. So Zimri got the throne for one week before Omri came and took him. But who's Omri? Well, Omri is Ahab's father. That is Jezebel's father-in-law. So when she says, is it you, O Zimri? She's basically saying, you're a weak, no good assassinator. Yeah, you may have the throne right now, but it's only going to last for seven days because one of us is going to take you down Again, and then her statement, you murderer of your master, is probably not the most alluring comment to make to Jehu. Well, Jehu just avoids all the taunts, and he just says, look, is there anyone up there on my side? And a couple of eunuchs, probably very eager to get rid of Jezebel, run to the window and heave ho, and out she goes. And as Keith read, the story goes in a way that is not G-rated, not even PG-13 rated, because she bounces off the wall, crushes her body, and then the horses stamp her to death. And Jehu, being a military commander and having a stronger stomach than us, goes, let's eat! 
let's go have a meal. Now, this is most likely a covenant meal with others, and he's in there enjoying it. And then he goes, you know, she was a daughter of a queen. We should bury her rightly. And they go out, and what do they find? A head and appendages. Everything else has been eaten by dogs. And this, as Jehu points out, fulfills the words of 1 Kings 21, 21 through 23, where God speaking, speaking through Elijah says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel. So she dies the very death that God promised. And we are reminded of God's perfect justice. Jezebel got exactly what was coming to her. And I'm sure many Israelites that night rejoiced. In the Wizard of Oz, when the witch dies, the woman exuberantly declares, Let the joyous news be spread. The wicked old witch at last is dead. And I kind of find the Wizard of Oz a little weird, but nonetheless, the munchkins break into singing, Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Which old witch? The wicked witch. And they're excited. They're rejoicing. When God's justice is poured out on people who are oppressing others, there is great rejoicing. On the day of God's final judgment, when every single wrong is perfectly made right, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And yet, while the killing of Joram and the killing of Ahaziah and the killing of Jezebel makes clear sense, the next section leaves us with mixed emotions and thoughts on what Jehu is doing. Is he executing God's justice or is he going beyond what God wanted him to do? Well, let's read it. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters to the city, and sorry, and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and they are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set them on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings couldn't stand before them, then how can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we'll do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you're on my side, and if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men 
and his close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, he was at Beth Echid of the shepherds. Jehu met the relatives of the Amaziah, Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We're the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Echid, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him, and he said to him, Is your heart true to my heart, as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me, and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So here in these verses, Jehu employs a rather cunning strategy to bring to end Ahab's children. It would take a lot of work to round all 70 of them up. So he appeals to the leaders and those who watch over Ahab's children. Essentially, he says, look, whichever of those you think is the strongest, put them in charge. Let's go to war. Let's figure this thing out. However, to do this would mean that these leaders are casting their lot with Ahab's family. And they know no one is going to stand a chance against Jehu. So they say, ah, we'll serve you, Jehu. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Over 2,500 years ago and even today, people will do whatever saves their own skin. We love, Jay, we love Ahab. We love Joram. Oh, wait, they're dead. We don't love Ahab. We don't love Joram. They're willing to switch whoever so that they can stay alive. Many people, even today, may have strong opinions, may have strong views until they realize, ooh, that's no longer favorable. And so they change their opinion. And so we have to have wisdom. As we interact with people, you have to be careful. If they are willing to backstab, to gossip, to lie about others and demean others, they're eventually going to do that to you once you no longer serve them. Well, here these leaders in Samaria are so self-serving that they will kill all 70 sons of Ahab just to save their own heads. Now, ultimately, this is what should have been done. And yet, if these people were about justice, they would have sought to do something like this way before. It's a little unclear what happens, but it seems as though these heads make it down to Jezreel sometime in the night or maybe later in the day. And so, Jehu has them, stack them all up at the city gates. Now, that's obviously quite grotesque to people like us. And the thing is, if you understand ancient culture, you'll know that it was quite grotesque to them, too. It's disgusting. No one wants to see 70 heads piled up as you're coming in to buy food from the market. You know, few things could be more fear-inducing and revolting than walking by the gates and seeing the heads of all of the leaders. It's like jihadists live-streaming, removing people's heads. They do it to incite fear and so that you will do what they say. Well, Jehu uses this to cleverly manipulate the situation so they'll support him. He basically says, well, look, 
Y'all all know I killed Joram and Ahaziah and Jezebel, but who killed these? And what he's trying to say is, look, only if everyone is now on my side, even the Lord is on my side, will, this, will these things be happening. Now he's not saying they magically appeared, but he's pointing out, look, you shouldn't resist. You should bow to my authority. And his plan seems to work because in verse 10, 11, he continues his massacre and no one opposes him. And yet while many things are good, it's interesting in verse 11 that he strikes down not only the rest of Ahab's house in Jezreel, but also his close friends. Now God did call for Ahab's house to be removed, but there was never any mention of these friends. This and some other factors, I think, leave us with some questions of who or whose zeal is Jehu serving? Well, Jehu goes to the capital, Samaria, and on the way he meets relatives of Ahaziah. That's from the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And they're coming in for a family reunion, clearly haven't heard what's going on. And when they say we're coming in to see Ahaziah and family, Jehu takes them and slaughters all of them. There's nothing that says Jehu should kill the descendants of David's family. And then we're introduced to a mysterious figure, Jehonadab. We don't really know much else about him, though he could be similar to a man mentioned in Jeremiah 35. Jeremiah tells of this family that comes from a man with a similar spelling to Jehonadab. <coughs> and they've been faithful to the Lord. And maybe this is an early glimpse of this man. Either way, it's clearly a man who's faithful to the Lord. And so Jehu wants to show Jehonadab his zeal for the Lord. And so he brings him up into his chariot, showing, look, these people who serve the Lord, they want to be with me too. And so with Jehonadab in his chariot, Jehu continues with his zeal for the Lord. And he goes, and we read in verses 16 and 17, that he wipes out the rest of Ahab's family. So what should we make of this zeal for God? Well, on the one hand, we should all have a zeal for God. We should be zealous. Phinehas is praised for his zeal in Numbers 25, 11. Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, it says, zeal for his father's house consumed him. Yet on the other hand, we have to make sure that our zeal for God is actually for God. Paul writes of himself in Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal... I was a persecutor of the church. The issue is what he'll later write about in Romans 10.2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, zeal for God is good if it's actually for God and actually in accordance with the truth. And yet sometimes our zeal can be similar to for God, but it seems really to be serving our own purposes. Jehu clearly showed zeal for God, but there was also some zeal that seems rather self-serving. Killing off friends of Ahab and relatives to Ahaziah probably removed a lot of potential threats to taking his throne. But we don't see that that was what God commanded him to do. And we're not just left guessing, because in the book of Hosea, Jehu's actions are condemned. Now, if you've read the prophecy that is given to Hosea. It's very interesting. It starts by Hosea being given three children, and he has to name them interesting things. 
One of his sons, we're told, is given this name, Hosea 1.4. And the Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So here, Hosea is being told by God that Jehu is being punished for his slaughter that happened in Jezreel, what we just read about. You know, Jezreel became to them what Gettysburg means to us, a national place of slaughter that is now fixed in our mind. And so in many ways, Jehu pleased God. And yet in some ways, he went too far. And due to that, God promised to punish him. It's similar to how later in the Old Testament, God will use Assyria and Babylon to punish Israel But then later he will punish those nations because they weren't ultimately doing it for his glory. But then we're left with another head scratcher in the next section, verses 18 through 27. Is this God's judgment through Jehu on the priest of Baal? Let's read the verses, verses 18 through 27. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hand to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. So Jehu assembles the people and he says something that shocks us. He says, look, I'm going to worship Baal more than Ahab did. And yet then we're told he only did this to deceive them so he could wipe out the worshipers of Baal. As Jezebel sought to destroy the worshippers of the Lord, so Jehu in turn seeks to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And he goes to great lengths to make sure this will happen. First, he sets up a massive feast and he says, look, if anyone doesn't come, we're going to put them to death. They don't know that if they come, they're going to be put to death. But nonetheless, they don't know that yet. Second, once they're assembled, he has them put on the clothing that shows that they're worshippers of Baal. Third, he then says, look, I want y'all to make sure these are only Baal worshipers in here. No one here who's, you know, a seeker just trying to know if this is going to be for them. Only true Baal worshipers. And then lastly, he has 80 soldiers outside and he says, look, 
This is going to be easy. They just put the big X on their back when they put the bail clothes on. So if you let anyone escape, your life is going to be forfeit. So Jehu finishes the offering and the soldiers go in and kill every single one of them. They destroy the pillar. They knock down the building, burn it with fire, and they make it a latrine. You know, in one astonishing day, the worship of Baal went from nationally sanctioned, supported, and the dominant religion to being completely extinct. You know, Jehu's actions seem to be the perfect finishing touch, for we read in 1 Kings 16.32 that Ahab was the one who built this temple in the first place. And I think, at least for me, this makes me wonder, why do I put limits in my mind on what God can do? I know many of us get concerned about our nation, and often rightfully so. Yet rather than fret, let's gather and pray. In one day, Baalism went from seemingly unconquerable to completely gone. And God can still work in such ways today. These are not just stories of the past. These are ways that God does work. And yet again, many may wonder, well, look, is Jehu crossing the line? His orders would destroy the house of Ahab. Should he have killed the priest? And I think the answer is definitively yes. Jehu should have done this. Yes, it's correct to note that the mission was stated to remove Ahab. But why was he to remove Ahab? Because the whole reason Ahab is a problem is because he worships Baal. This is why God said even in the first place that Elisha, Haziel, and Jehu would come. Beyond that, God clearly stated in the first and second commandments, have no other gods, make no images. If Jehu was to lead the nation well, this is what he would have to do eventually. As well, God had warned Israel, if they didn't remove the foreign gods, then they would be punished. And on top of that, God had given clear instructions on what to do with false prophets. Deuteronomy 13.5 says, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So that's why we could debate on whether Jehu's deception was moral or not. The actual removal of the worshippers of Baal and the temple of Baal was pleasing to God. This was God's judgment through Jehu on the priest of Baal. And so we've seen both great and some questionable actions by Jehu. Some actions were clearly good and others were later condemned in Hosea. Thus we have a delicate balance in trying to understand Jehu, for we can neither praise all he did nor condemn it all. And we see that same balancing in our last section. Let's read verses 28 through 36. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel a sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel a sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward 
all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Massonites from Arior, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his acts and might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. And so this section begins by highlighting Jehu's eradicating the worship of Baal from Israel. And that was a wonderful, God-honoring thing to do. So Jehu's great. We love you, Jehu. Oh, yes, we do. Hold on, verse 29. We read tragic lines. Jehu did not stop the worship of the golden calves that Jeroboam had made. Okay, we get it. Jehu, bad. Boo. We don't like you, Jehu. You're horrible. Hold on. Verse 30. Now we read that he was better than any other king from Israel. It says Jehu did well in the eyes of God. And then God promises him four generations. A promise almost like that to David. So here, verse 30, if we only had that, we'd think, Jehu, Jehu, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. But, not so vast. Verse 31. We then see that Jehu did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. So, on top of that, not only did Jehu not turn completely to God, he began to be punished, and he began to lose the land that God said they would lose if they didn't obey. The same Syrian king, Haziel, now starts to take land from Jehu. And you may be wondering, would the author just shoot straight? Are we supposed to commend or condemn Jehu? One verse says a good thing, then the next says bad. Good and then bad. And we don't really like that. We don't like nuanced answers. We want to have clear-cut answers so that we can say, look, This is the type of person we build a statue to, or this is the type of person we tear their statue down. Yet the reality is, in life, except for Jesus, everyone is a mixture of good and bad. So let's end by noting four things that I think we should glean from Jehu's life. First, this is not saying that it's fine to do a little bit of sin if you've done great things for God. We see that because though Jehu did wonderful things, over and over it keeps bringing up his sins. And yet, sadly, we're prone to believe this. Oh, I've been so faithful in this area. It'll be all right if I'm not so good in here. I've been faithful to my family. It's fine if I indulge in these websites for a little bit. You know, we go to church all the time. It's it's okay if we miss every once in a while. You know, we used to serve, so that's okay that we don't now. But we have to be vigilant. We can't be comfortable with little sins because we've defeated major sins. Several years ago, Jerry Bridges wrote a book entitled Respectable Sins. And his point was not that any sin is respectable, but that in our churches, we can kind of have the idea, well, if you don't have these big list sins, well, these other ones like, you know, maybe getting angry every once in a while, being unthankful, pride, selfishness, judgmentalism, envy... You know, we all have those. They're okay. And his book was written to show, no, they're not okay. Jesus had to die for every sin, little or big. There's no little sin to God. So yes, we'll never be perfect. And we should rejoice 
in God's grace that saves us. Yet we should, as Hebrews 12:14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Second thing, people like Jehu should bring us comfort. Now what I'm about to say may seem to contradict what I just said, but I think we can see the demand for holiness while also realizing God uses broken vessels like Jehu and us. Yes, God demands perfect righteousness to be with him eternally, but he also knows our frame, that we are but dust. And through Jesus, he accepts our half-hearted efforts to serve him. Now, who of us can say that last night we could barely sleep because we were giddy with joy to come worship this morning? That all morning... We've only been riveted by the word of God and no thoughts could distract our mind while we sang or we listened to the sermon. I can never say that. Does that mean God is this morning going rubbish, all of you half-hearted creatures? No, not at all. It's clear, verse 30, the Lord was pleased with what Jehu did. So God was pleased with Jehu in some areas and he blessed him and... God was displeased in some areas and disciplined him. So we should not wrongly conclude from this that sin is fine. That's not what it's teaching. But neither should we go Martin Luther style before his conversion where he was in the confession, giving confessions of sins for hours. Where the priest was saying, Luther, come back when you have an actual sin to confess to me. You know, like Jehu, as a redeemed but sinful person, you can please God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. You know, sometimes we get so focused that all of our righteousness is filthy rags that we give this impression, well, you can never please God. That's not true. In Christ, you can lead a life that God will say, well done. He's not going to go, rubbish. Everything you did was filthy in my eyes. Or Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You might never please your spouse. You might have a coach who will never say good job. Your parents may always find something to critique. You may never please yourself. But you can please God through your actions that are done in faith through Christ. The third thing I think we need to draw from these passages is that being biblical means more than just having a verse. For we have to understand it in the right context and apply it in the right context. Three times, Jehu cites that he is doing this in accordance with God's word. And most of the time he was. But the other times it appeals that his zeal for God slightly shifted into his zeal for Jehu. And I bet if we were there those moments, Jehu probably didn't even recognize it. He probably legitimately thought, I am still serving the Lord. He had a Bible verse. It was okay. And yet we have to make sure we're applying God's truth in the right context. I recently read an article that really resonated with me when it came to the issues that have kind of come to the fore in the last few years, the issues of race, politics, and gender in the church. And in writing this, he said, look, what's happened is Christians have fallen broadly into four camps. The contrite, the compassionate, 
the careful, or the courageous. And I think Christians should agree that at some times, individually and as a group, we should be all of those. There are verses and times where we need to be contrite, where we need to say we were wrong. There are verses and times where we need to be compassionate and empathize with others. There are verses and times where we need to be careful and say, I'm not sure what they're saying is wrong is actually wrong. There are verses and times to be courageous and take a stand and say, no, that's wrong. And yet the problem is sometimes like Jehu, we get stuck in one of these and we're only courageous all the time or we're only contrite. And sometimes we no longer need to be contrite. We need to stand up. And sometimes we need to stop standing up and we need to have some compassion. And so we have to realize, yes, we should always glean truth from Scripture. And as we do that, we have to understand it in context and apply it in the proper context. Lastly, fourthly, not too shocking, but the call for us is not to kill false worshipers. We do not live in the Old Testament. Your zeal for the Lord should not lead you to going out, all right, let's go find out which place in this town isn't a worshiper of Christ, and we're going to go in with guns and we're going to take them out. That is not what you should do. God's people in the Old Testament were a nation that were under the Mosaic law. They had specific requirements for them that are now different for us who are now of many tribes, tongues, and nations. So what should we do? Does that mean we have no application? No, it means that God calls for us to be a pure and holy church. Now again, that doesn't mean we're going to kill you if you sin. But we should, in love, be pursuing one another and saying, this church needs to be pure. We're not called to be junior Holy Spirits, but if you see me in sin, doesn't matter that I'm the pastor. You in love should at the right time come to me and say, Pastor Jeremy, or you can just call me Jeremy, I don't care. That was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And by God's grace, I'll say, you're right. And I'll confess my sin. And if I don't, well, there's lots of scriptures in the New Testament that explain what we should do. But we should love God so much. We should have the same zeal that in love, we should confront one another in the right manner. And then if they won't repent, we go all the way even to removing them from the church. That's the New, Tev New Testament equivalent for us today. And so what should we make of Jehu? Well, he was a man a lot like us. He did a lot of really good things. And he did some boneheaded things. And by God's grace, we'll confront one another when we're doing the boneheaded things. And then we'll all together... Serve the Lord so that he'll be honored and glorified in our lives. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us humility? Oh Lord, we are not perfect and yet we want to. As a church, we want to honor you. Lord, may we have a zeal. May we not be lethargic, uncaring about others. May we, when we see sin, want to repent of it in our own life. Gently confront one another in our church as we see it in their lives. And may we be holy and pure. Lord, may we not become distracted and get caught up in our own agendas, though. May our mission always be for you and not for our name. All of this that you might be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.